Good morning, City Life. Good morning, Church. Welcome to our new corporate headquarters here in Jersey City. Anne and I, we moved this past week and we're just so grateful for everyone who helped us. Um, so grateful to have this new home and to be able to share it with you when life in terms of COVID goes a little bit back to normal. We miss you all so much and um, we just I just want to jump right on in into today's message. You see, the first thing I want to talk about today is this idea, is this concept, it's called general revelation. General, general revelation is super fascinating. It's this idea that God has so embedded himself in his creation, that his creation captures in a special way his majesty, his beauty, that when we look up to the skies and we see the vastness of space, we're like, oh my goodness, and that's not even as big as you. When we look at mountains and we're like, oh, that's so big and powerful and strong. How, how strong is our God? When we look at clouds and we see funny animals and they were like, wow, God, you're so creative. You are so beautiful. How, how do all of these things point to you? You know, now skeptics would call this confirmation bias, right? We have this bias and we want it to be confirmed in everything that we do. But once we know Jesus, once we know the beauty that God has, we look everywhere. It screams out of his beauty and he's put himself He's put this picture of him. We have this appetite to know him, to, to long for him, and that everywhere we look, we're just so consumed by his beauty. And, and, and out of this idea today, I want to start off by talking about something that I, in seminary, never thought I would talk about, and it's the giant sequoia trees in Yosemite Park. You see, Yosemite Park is one of the biggest, most beautiful, most well-known parks in this country. In 1864, President Lincoln took time out of leading the Union during the Civil War to make this a protected territory or a protected place because it's just so beautiful. It so captures the majesty of creation. And, and there's one thing in particular in this forest that captures people's imagination all the time. We know about every all of the other attractions. You might have been there. If I'm jealous if you have. I'll go one day. But it's these giant sequoia trees. And I know at some point in this video, I'm going to call them cicadas, but I keep telling myself sequoias. And the, these trees are just so beautiful. They are so large. I haven't seen one in person, but even just the pictures are so awe-inspiring that they can grow up to be 27 stories tall, almost 300 feet tall. Some of the oldest sequoia trees in Yosemite are around 3,000 years old. Just imagine, I just try and picture what that is like. Just try and picture that they were 1,000 years old when Jesus came and walked this earth. That they are already old, big trees by the time Jesus gets back here. Now 2,000 later, some of them are still going and they're still kicking. And we talk about general revelation, man. These trees just somehow capture something so grand and beautiful about God and his design of everything. And I, I really <laughs> believe that there's no greater physical embodiment that I know of, at least, on earth for, for, for what First and Second Peter are trying to communicate to us than these great sequoia trees. I, I have never discovered it. If it's there one day, I'll, I'll update this sermon. But there is nothing that I've ever heard of that so perfectly captures what God did in these giant sequoia trees and what the Holy Spirit put on, God, on Peter's heart when he was writing First and Second Peter. 
And, and this is part of the story. We're going to tell a story about these trees. You see, from, for decades, in the mid to late 1900s, for decades, researchers, people who took care of the forest, were finding an alarming problem that no new sequoias were being sprouted anywhere in the forest. They tried and they tried and they tried. For decades, they tried unsuccessfully. They could not get these trees to grow. And they were afraid that one day Yosemite might be a, a tree, a, a national park, without any new sequoias. And for decades, they tried to go. So even just this small portion, I think, speaks of the story. We're gonna, I'm going to put it down right here and put it a little bow on it. We'll come back to it later. But even just this small portion of the story speaks to us from first and second Peter perspective. You know, who would have ever known? I never thought I would go to seminary and prepare myself to say this. But how much our lives are like these great sequoia trees. You know, when, when the growth that we want to see in ourselves isn't happening or when we have this, these promises from the Lord, He's promised us good things and when they're just not coming, they're not coming into fruition and we're just waiting and we work for years and years and they're nowhere to be found. Have we ever bought into the lie as individuals or as a church that if when we say yes to this Christian living, life should be easy? Have, you, have we ever bought into that lie? And so over the course of this series, our Deepening Our, Our Souls series, we've been looking to First and Second Peter, and we've been allowing it to do some deep work in our hearts. Two weeks ago, we talked about how what we do matters. The lives that we live matter. Jesus is coming back. Peter wants us to remember that always. Jesus is coming back, so what we do here matters. He also, last week, we talked about how Peter is like, you know what? Jesus is the better teacher. He really is just so much better than all of all of these teachers running around here. Even the good ones, Jesus is better than all of them. Peter warns the church that always, whenever humans are a part of the church, which is always, there are going to be some teachers who are just out here to utterly deceive, spread corruption, to lie for gain. They just want to gain. They're diligent in their deception for the church. But Peter reminds us, Jesus is, it, Jesus is the better teacher because everything he ever did was out of an act of service. Everything he ever did, every breath here in this planet was out of service and love for us and sacrifice. And over these last couple of weeks, we've also allowed Peter's life in the Gospels to speak to the growth that happens when we know the Holy Spirit, when we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. See, two, two weeks ago we looked at uh, John 21 and how Jesus demonstrated his care and love and his ability to walk Peter down difficult roads when he took time out to make him a fire and three times undid the work that Peter did in his own soul when he denied Jesus three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Every time bringing more and more healing into his heart. Then we looked at John 13, when Jesus just, I don't think we can ever fully comprehend what he did here. The creator of everything, the man who spoke everything into being, he came and condescended down to earth, he, can't, he took our form, and then not only all of that, but he did the most disgusting, the lowliest job that there could possibly be in a house, 
and he washed his disciples' feet. The fact that a master or a rabbi would ever do this is already shocking, but Christ, the Messiah, the fact that he would do that, man, that should never be casual to us. That Jesus would stoop down this low to pick us up is just incredible. And so we see that this man went from this rash disciple, this short-tempered disciple, the one who cut the ear off of someone, of another person, and he became this seasoned, decades-old pastor who was so in love with his Savior. It's so incredible to see. And so we are continuing this week. This is our last week going through a chapter. We'll still be one more week in this series next week. But today we're finishing off 2 Peter. We're looking at 2 Peter chapter 3. And later on we're going to come back to our sequoias. We're going to wrap that up and bring it in. But before we go, let me just pray. Let me pray that today's sermon does what God intended it to. It continues to stoke this fire in us and this change in us to make us look more like Christ. So please pray with me. Lord, I thank you for this day, and I am so grateful to be a part of this. I am so grateful to be a part of your church. I'm so grateful to have heard your call, to have heard your name, and to have had the ability to say yes. Lord, show us all the privilege that we have in being your your heirs, co-heirs with you. Holy Spirit, I invite you into this morning. I invite you into this recording. I invite you into every single place that we're at, all of us who claim to... (laughs) to know you, to follow you, to, to make our lives all about pursuing you and looking more like you. Jesus, do a mighty work. Holy Spirit, do a mighty work. Father, do a mighty work in all of us this morning. We want to look more like you. We want our lives to look more like you. And so, Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're just jumping right into our sermon. We're, we're, we're throwing away all the floof, all the other stuff that we don't need, and we're jumping right on in into our first point, which is he's never coming back. See, Peter addresses the third dilemma in this book. The third question that he knows people are asking and that these false teachers are spreading. These teachers who are just so lustful, they just are spreading lies and corruption everywhere they go, and they're doing this on purpose. It's not an accident. They're not misspeaking. This is the goal and the aim. They want to profit from the Lord and about lying for him, about him. And we see here in the first five verses of chapter three. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the protections of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is the dilemma. You see, these teachers are basing their lives off of these false teachings and they're spreading it to everyone else and they're basically here saying you know what jesus isn't coming back it's taking way too long he should have been here by now you all along you've been saying that he's coming soon prepare yourself prepare yourself he's coming soon so i don't think he's coming at all he's taking too long 
It's like, what, what, what's going to happen? You know what? He should have been here by now. Guy, I think you're wrong because this is not going as as planned. This is not doing, you, this is not happening the way you told us to be. You told us he would be coming back soon. So what's taking God so long? Dude, what a, what a human nature question that all of us have asked in our lives multiple times. What's taking God so long? God is not coming uh, according to my plan. He's not doing what I want him to. He's not acting quickly enough. Look at all of this. He did. You claim Jesus was the Messiah, and yet this is taking so long. What's the deal here, God? And Peter's response is super elegant. It's super simple. Starting in verse 5, he starts saying this. For they deliberately overlook this fact. It's not an accident. They do this on purpose because they want to be able to lie and do whatever they want. This is what they overlook. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Three things here that we have to see. Three things in Peter's response. The first is that the heavens existed long ago. You see, he's he's telling them, you know what? All this that you know, all the cosmos, this general revelation, everything that has ever existed, that humanity has ever seen, everything all of this was created it wasn't just here god isn't made up it's not like all of this was here all along so he moved in on in and overtook everything no that even just by speaking god spoke this all into being it didn't just happen this isn't just an accident there was a beginning to all of this and if there's a beginning then it's going somewhere the second thing was that the earth was formed out of water We don't get this, but this is an ancient and Near Eastern uh, expression that water always resembled chaos and that God overcame chaos, that all of this is his way of organizing, bringing his order, bringing his kingdom to fruition. I remember the picture in Genesis 1 is that God in his trinity and the trinity was just hovering over the waters meant that there was all this chaos around him, and yet God was still God. He was still pure. He was still blameless. And out of all that chaos, he overcame it all and created everything that we see. All of this beauty, all of the mountains, the stars, the clouds, you and me, he created all of this. That God, if he can overcome the amount of chaos that what was when there was nothing, the darkness, the void. If he can overcome that man, then you think taking a few more years, you think taking a few more millennia is really beyond God's ability? (laughs) Peter's like, no, okay, we need to calm down. We need to chill on that one a little bit. That God knows what he needs to do to take care of what he needs to do in what order. So we're we're too small to get this. Even in our understanding, in our lives, we get frustrated and it's natural and it's normal. But Peter is reminding us, remember that in all of this book, it's a reminder after a reminder. He wants the church to know what he's done. You know what? God has it under control. God knows what he's doing. He created this. This was all nothing. He created all of this. And you know what? More than just that, he created this out of chaos. He's got this. He is so powerful. He's got this. And then the last thing here in these couple of verses 
is that it was created just by a word from heaven. I love this. I love this part of this. Peter's here saying, you know what, God's, all of this, the oldest things in the world, the expanse of the universe, the the infiniteness of his creation, how we struggle to even understand the biggest things that happen in this universe and also the smallest things. You know what? All of that was spoken into being. So not only did God create it, not only did God defeat chaos in the process, but he did this all by just speaking. And if God can speak this into being, what happens when he's on the move? What happens when he takes our form, when he comes down here? When he comes and lives a life, he interacts with us, he feeds us. What happens when he is on the move here and he promises us that he's going to come back? If God spoke everything into being, he promised us he'll come back. You know what? He's coming back. Don't let go of Jesus like First Peter. Don't let go of him because he promised us he'll be coming back. I love, one of the things that I love talking about the most is how wild God is. That God isn't just some thing out there or he's just some like best friend out there. But how he is so wild. He does what he pleases because he sees fit to do it at all times. And just like in chapter 1, Peter begins chapter 3 here by telling us he's reminding us. He wants to remind us all of this in our sincere mind. That God has this under control. He's reminding us that he's reminding us that God is so big. He's so powerful. He is so capable. He so knows the extent of all things. He so knows the details. He so knows what's going on in your life and in my life. He knows what's happening in some solar system millions of years away. That he is able to bring freedom into our lives. And this is both a really frightening and a really freeing lesson to learn. It's freeing in that the weight of the world does not rely on your shoulder. That the things that are really important in your life, that you're struggling with season after season, year after year, you're going back like last week, like a pig to his own vomit or like a cleaned pig back into the mud. That it doesn't rely on your ability to do this, but your submission to God and God's plan. So it's freeing and that you can rest in that. That not all of life is a struggle, but that you can rest. But it's also frightening in that it's a loss of control. That you and I, we don't control everything that happens. That we don't control our very lives. That God should be the one at the helm. Jesus, take the wheel like that song goes. It's frightening when we lose control at times, but Peter is reminding us here, you know what, he's taking a long time because he sees fit, because he knows what he needs to do, because he created all of this, and if he did all of this, then he knows how to orchestrate human history. He knows how what needs to take place until he, he comes back. He knows what really matters. And and to borrow from our image from the sequoia stories, for decades, these scientists and researchers, the people, the forest rangers, they tried to get these trees to grow. But for decades, I'm not even talking a couple of years, but for decades, there was no success. And it's this picture that when we try and control things, when we try and take things away from God's natural order, 
from the thing from giving him actually the ability to to tell us what to do and where to go and how to live that nothing really grows and so the next thing we need to talk about is patient repentance read with me verse 18 to 13 we were originally going to do this whole chapter, but we're going to leave the last couple of verses, the last four verses for next week, starting in verse 8. It says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. I love that. I love how he starts it. This is the second time of the three times in this chapter that he calls us beloved. But let's go back. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in, the, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, Peter, first of all, we just need you to pump the brakes a little bit. You were, we were following you and then you just got way too crazy. This is getting way too crazy, way too soon. Peter, <laughs> please slow down. We're talking about, okay, we make sense. Okay, you, you're, you already had us on a limb here, but we were holding on. But then now you're starting to talk about everything dissolving and being burned and heavenly bodies. And we're like, wait, I thought that you were a kind pastor who loved the Lord. That's the picture we've been painting this whole time. And then now you start talking about all of these crazy things, Peter, we just need you to slow down for a second. Let us catch up. Again, I, I love how he starts calling us beloved. It's, it's so important because it allows us to know, okay, Peter is not just going turn or burn. Turn or burn. He's not going scorched earth on us here. He's saying, you know what? Listen to this, beloved. This is important. But do not overlook this. And I love that. I love that he goes here. And what he's saying is, you know what, don't overlook this. He just told us where the scoffers, the bad teachers, they overlook truth. He's saying, don't do this. Little kids, sit down. He's like a good father sitting us down. He's like a good, patient pastor sitting us down and say, you know what, don't miss this. This is really important. And this is what he, he wants us to really know. That a thousand years is like a day with God. And a, and a day is like a thousand years with him. It's like, wow, that's beautiful poetry, but Lord, what does that mean? And in this instance, Peter is quoting from Psalm, Psalm 90. And it's a beautiful psalm. Psalm 90 starts off saying this. Let me just turn to it really quick. Michael, will cut this if it takes too long. The first two verses of Psalm 90 say this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I love this reminder. I love how Peter goes here in this story. 
He's basically telling us all the time, you know what, our home is in the Lord. Before all of this was made, He was our home and our refuge. Before all of the chaos that we go through, He is our home, everlasting to everlasting, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what was going on in our house, he, in our world, He is our dwelling place. Generation after generation, that's going to be the case. There are no delays with God. There's no slowing down His timing. That He knows what He's doing. He knows when He's doing it. It's a hard lesson for us to accept the moment that we actually need to believe in this. The, the moment we need to actually rely on this. But He's telling us, He's sitting us aside and saying, you know what? A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. God is in control. It doesn't always make sense, but you know what? He so loves you and me that our dwelling place is in Him. He's making a way. And you know what? It's not just even this. But in the same spirit that, he, that, Peter, that Jesus would look at the Pharisees and He would just utterly oppose them, Peter changes his tone here. And he starts talking about these scoffers. In verse 9 he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Here, I'm sure some of the fire that Jesus saw, that Peter saw in Jesus' eyes when he was talking to the Pharisees, came out here and he switches his tongue. You know what? You are scoffing. You are mocking the Lord. You're telling people. You're teaching all these false things. You're telling them. It doesn't matter what you do in your life. It doesn't matter moral decisions, ethics, Christian values, following in, in Jesus' footsteps. It doesn't matter because he's not coming back. It's taking way too long. And, and Peter reminds them, you know what? God's not slow as we think of it being slow. But you know what? The reason why this is taking so long, for some reason God finds it fitting that he should give you time to repent. And he says that you, the very specific Greek to the scoffers in this, he said you need to repent. This slowness that you're talking about that allows you to do whatever you want with your freedom in Christ, you know what? It's actually God's kindness towards you because you need to repent. That these teachers are so blind, they're so corrupt, that their intentions are so evil, that God's patience towards them is for them to repent. Because God does not wish that even these horrible teachers, even the worst ones of us, He does not want to see them perish, but He gives them time for repentance. But He also says this, because God never stops there. In verse 10 he starts, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. He's saying here, you know what? We, we often think about speed, but it's not about speed, it's about suddenness. You know, God's return, Jesus' return, is not that it's going to happen in our lifetime. Man, the disciples were still alive. This was still in the lifetime of the disciples, and there were false teachers saying, This is taking too long. 2,000 years later, this question becomes much more relevant. Why is Jesus taking so long? But Peter's saying here, you know what? It was never about the speed of Jesus' return. It was about the suddenness. Suddenness, not speed. Jesus' return is going to come like a thief in the night. And it's going to come with a roar. No one's going to be able to expect it. 
the very whenever a Christian leader comes up and says the Lord's returning on this day, you can go to Las Vegas and bet all your money on that Jesus is not coming on that day because nobody knows. It's sudden and it's going to come like a thief. So repent today. You have this time today. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't get your affairs in order tomorrow. Do it today because we don't know when it's going to come. You can't expect it. You won't be ready for it. So find yourself in a good place. Find yourself in this in God's patience and in his repentance. And then from here, Peter takes a oh man. He, he starts going a little bit crazy. We're like, Peter, again, slow down, man. We, we need you to let us catch up to you. He starts talking about the heavenly bodies and then being dissolved and this fire. And I thought that this was going to be the hardest part to talk about this morning, but actually it has become my favorite part of this whole chapter. Peter isn't here again. I said this. He's not just going scorched earth. He's not going turn or burn. This is not a sidewalk minister here who just is so full of hate that he wants everyone to know how hard it is to follow Jesus and how good this person is. But most commentators here talk, okay, these heavenly bodies, we don't even know what this is. Most people are pretty in agreement that this this is talking about outer space, the planets, the suns, this guy's heavenly bodies. They say, you know what, they're all going to start dissolving. They're all, everything here is going to start breaking apart. All the, all the cosmos, with cosmos, which is a word that he uses in the Greek here, all of this, all of the expanse here is going to start dissolving. We're like, oh, Peter, I need your help, man. I don't know what you're talking about. Why, why this? We had you up until here, but why this? And Peter is saying this. There's coming a day when we won't need general revelation anymore. We won't need to look up to the sky to see, oh my God is so big. We don't need to look up to the clouds. God is so creative. We don't need to look to this or to that. You know why? Because one day God is coming himself. And so we won't need anything to point us to him because we will have him. This is all figurative language. Revelations 22 verse 5 says this, And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, God doesn't have some vendetta against the sun. He's saying, okay, the sun in the sky is going to be gone one day. It's going to be gone when he returns. But the picture there is, you know what? You won't need that light because God will be the only light that we need. In his kingdom, there will be no darkness because God will be with us. There will be no secrets because everything will be known. Everything's going to be open. There's not going to be any more pain. There's not going to be any more division or tears or false teachings because God will be here with him, himself with us. Just like that Psalm 90, Psalm 90 goes, that God is going to be our home generations to generations. And so Peter's promise here for you and for me is that we haven't been forgotten in the times when we're like, Lord, where are you? I don't know where you are. You're taking so long. Remind ourselves. This is not easy, but we have to remind ourselves that God created everything. That God has everything in his hand and he's defeating chaos everywhere he goes. That one day he's coming back and and on that day, we won't need the sun. We won't need everything to point us to him because he will be with us. He'll actually be with us. And how incredible is that going to be? 
<laughs> I, lo I love this. I love that he, Peter is telling us, you know what, the process of us getting there is what is producing this strength in us that we can't do on our own. That through, remember from First Peter, that through this fire we are being refined and we are being made into the people. And just like in Second Peter chapter 1, add these virtues, add patience. Well, that's not one of the ones he said. Brotherly affection, knowledge, self-control. Add these things and you will never fall. Is that we are being made to look more like Christ when we go through all the fires of life with him and not opposed to him. That if we let the, the trials, the hard seasons in our life, the, sea, the fires, the trials, the hard seasons that come from him to refine us and the ones that come from the enemy to defeat us. If we let God propel our faith in those moments and not have it hurt our faith, if we stand tall with God in the face of all of that, then you know what, God, we're going to start looking more and more like Christ every day. And so now we have to go back to our sequoias and make, make sense of that story. Why in the world am I talking about sequoias this morning? And so again, for decades, these researchers and scientists, these people who were in charge of Yosemite, they could not figure out how to grow sequoia trees anymore. They, they succeeded here and there, but they did not understand. It was more of an accident than it was them finding the answer. Until they found, until one day where a forest fire got out of control. You see, for decades and decades, their policy was every little fire that springs up, we're going to put it out. And for decades, they were hyper successful in this. No fire ever spread in Yosemite National Park. They fought it and they fought it for a long time. But then one day this one fire spread and they couldn't, they couldn't contain it. And it spread through the forest. And they realized that from that event, sequoias were sprouting up everywhere in the forest. And it's because sequoia seeds need fire for multiple reasons. You see, sequoia, tree, sequoia seeds need it because their seeds are so strong. Their acorns are so, not acorns, but their pine cones. No, they're not pine cones. Their sequoia cones, whatever they're called, are so hard that only fire can open them and release the seeds. But then the other thing that they found is it wasn't just the seed, but over the decades of not letting these natural fires, natural fires, come and clear the ground for them, there was so much uh, overbush, is what they called it, on the floor, that the seeds, even if they did find fire, even if they fell, and even if they opened, they couldn't get to the ground because there was no fire there to clear everything that was in the way. And so, again, this is the, I think this is the best, purest, most beautiful picture of what First and Second Peter are telling us. Is that God knows what we need to go from who we were into the people that he sees us to be, the people that he knows he's building us up to be. This community, this church that Peter taught in First Peter, you know, love the church, serve one another, be kind to one another, grow in compassion and love for one another. It's not just so that we have a good time, but it's so that the God's prophetic community will grow and become strong and live in the spirit and have spiritual gifts and do amazing things, the things that Jesus promised us that we would do. He's First Peter talked about how you will never be as strong as we ought to be, 
that you'll never be as bold as you ought to be, that you'll never be able to accomplish the things, you'll never be impassioned enough, you'll never be intentional or devoted, impassioned enough without these fires that come along and purify us, that open us up, that crack us, and make us grow into the people that God actually has us to be. To make us sold out for Jesus, only the fires and the suffering of life can do that. It's that it is this picture that Jesus is saying, you know what? I need to come. I need to have so much ownership over your life. You need to follow my direction so much that I'm gonna that I'm gonna bring about this purifying fire in your life, and I'm gonna open you up like the seed. But I'm also going to clear the ground. I'm going to clear your life of everything that you don't need. I love that promise. I love that Jesus said, you know, I'm going to take away everything that's distracting you. If you follow me, I'm going to take away everything that's not important. You might think this is important. It's not. I'm going to take that. You might think that this is important. It's really not. It's getting in your way. So many parts of life that I think we would say, God, this is so crucial. I need this. And Jesus is saying, you know what? I have you, you don't need this. Or you can go without this. Or you should go without this. This is hurting you. This is keeping you from being the man and the woman that I've made you to be. For decades, the firefighters in Yosemite thought that they were saving life, but they, what, what, what they really were doing is that they were keeping life from actually coming, from new life sprouting out of the ashes of the things that weren't important. I love this picture. I pray that God will start fires in our life, start fires in our church that spread everywhere that he tends it, intends it to go and just clears everything that's not important, opens us up, brings us to a new place of vulnerability with him and with one another. And we say, Jesus, you know what? I'm a different person because of what I went through. I'm a different person because you walked me through that. If you created all of this, I trust you. I trust you with my plan. I trust you with what, where you're bringing me. I love another thing about the giant sequoias. See, the thing that allows these giant sequoias to, to last through these fires, you know, because the fires come and they, they consume anything that is too small or unimportant, according to our metaphor, and they just utterly destroy it. But the giant sequoias are actually extremely fire resistant. At the, at the base of, these, of the massive giant sequoia trees, their bark is over two feet long, two feet thick, making it so that the fires, yeah, sure, it might burn the outside, it might make them turn black, and it might, they might not look pretty for a bit, but the inside is always preserved. The fire never comes to the inside of the tree where it could grow and spread and consume the tree. I love that picture that God says to you, to me, through the giant sequoia, you know what? Not only will I just take away everything that is unimportant, not only will I purify your life and add all of these virtues into your heart, make you more like Christ in every season, during every struggle, not only will I do all of this, but at the end you're gonna be this person who can stand in the face of fire, and stand in the face of true, suffering stand in with people who are going through something that you've been and say you know what let me tell you about this jesus who, who helped me through this let me tell you about this one who i am firmly planted in and nothing can shake my faith in him 
I, lo- I love the giant sequoia story in Yosemite. I love how it interacts with First and Second Peter. I think it's so important. And, and again, here's a sentence that I went to seminary never knowing that I was preparing to say this. Jesus, I pray that we look more like giant sequoias than ever before. I pray that we as a church, as a nation, as a people, as God's prophetic presence in this world, that we let him consume us in all of the ways that he knows we need to be so that what remains is these solid, built people ready for God's use in a world that needs to know God's peace, God's love, God's work through the fire. And so Trish, we love you. I love you so much. We're going to jump onto MC calls and we're going to unpack some of these through questions like we normally do. We love you all so much. We can't wait for us to be together on September 20th, next Sunday. We're going to be communicating our safety protocols around that day. But we look forward to taking a small step in being together physically again so that we can reignite some of this passion face-to-face and share what God has been doing in our lives during this season that we've been socially distant. Church, we love you all so much, and uh, we'll be praying for you this week. All right, City Life Church, here are our prompt questions for this morning. Question number one. How has God used a past pain, a fire, to make you stronger today? Question number two. How do you feel when you hear that the trials you've experienced can make your faith stronger and not weaker? That all the difficulties in your life aren't there to to break you down but that God can take the pain and the sorrow and the grief and make you a more whole person. How does that make you feel? Question number three. What in God's creation speaks to you and what does it say? In this, in this idea of general revelation that when you look out into creation and it speaks to you, what, what speaks to you and what is it saying to you? How does it point you to God and you realize something or an attribute about him? All right, church, we love you so much. Let's jump on these calls and we'll be together again soon. We love you, praying for you. Talk to you soon.